2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim as what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. And with him, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in the many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. To these men. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. We are continuing in our series, Light of the Gospel, a study in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're uh, sort of doing a mini-series within a series, looking at giving and generosity here in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. We started this last week. Pastor Ryan shared how our giving, how our generosity is a reflection of the gospel, and today we're going to piggyback on that, continuing in that effort with understanding how money matters to God. Money matters to God. So to start off, uh, we can all think of a money scandal, right? Whether it was the CEO of a big corporation using corporate funds or misusing them, or maybe one that hits a little closer to home, uh, a church leader or a pastor stealing money from the church for his own welfare. The, uh, some of these circumstances may be more personal to you than others. Some um, individuals uh, we've been completely caught off guard by, thinking, how in the world? We never saw that coming in a million years, and others uh, caught us by no surprise at all. And the list includes really everyone under the sun. It's pastors and politicians and business partners and mothers and sons and friends. And the list includes them all. And then the Bible tells us, that those who desire to be rich fall into, temp into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You see, it's important for us to know that our hearts are not becoming more and more wicked day by day. Now, our hearts have always been deceitfully wicked and we may be coming up with more cunning ways to pull off evil things, but the same sin that plagued our hearts or plagues our hearts today is the same sin that plagued the hearts of the believers in the, in the church from the earliest days. This is why we heard last week that when we give and when we decide to be generous, our giving is more than just simply meeting a need. It is a demonstration it is a reflection, it is a proclamation of the gospel. And this is why Paul calls it what it is, an act of grace. 
For this doesn't come even from within you on your own. It comes from God. It is God's grace towards you, but yet it is also an act of grace carried out through you towards others. Sam Storms, he says this, that when it comes to money matters, money matters. When it comes to money matters, money really matters. And the point is this, that money is not one of those things that we can just regard as neutral ground for God, as if it doesn't matter to him. But in fact, the Bible has a lot to say about money. And because it does, we should see that God cares deeply about how we use money. So today, let me share with you a couple ways from this passage that we, we can see how money matters to God. And to do that, we're going to look at some, some overarching themes um, and concepts of how God relates to us and us to God. And the first is this, is that Jesus is Lord over our hearts. Look with me in the first um, uh, verse here from our text this morning. Verse 16, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Now, Titus was a student of Paul's, and he was um, brought to Christ as a Gentile um, by Paul, and he followed Paul as his interpreter and acted kind of as a secretary, uh, especially during this time of the collection of the saints. I did this for multiple years. Pitus, uh, Pitus, Titus, um, he didn't just simply work for Paul, though. Um, Paul regarded him as a partner and a fellow worker in this gospel ministry. Paul commended him as a man of faithfulness and earnestness for the gospel. And being so close to Paul through all these travels and also being literally the one to hand deliver all three of the letters to the Corinthians from Paul, Titus would have seen firsthand how the Corinthian church responded to Paul and how they received him or how they treated him. We've already covered how Paul in this letter has in majority been defending his apostleship. Now we're not told this, but in my mind it's undoubtable that this would not have uh, or that this would have affected Titus in some manner. And it, it's a little speculative maybe, but it's likely that Titus would have been tempted to become bitter and resentful towards the Corinthian church for the way that they maligned and they refused his friend after all that Paul had done for him, for them. But we don't see this as the case, right? In fact, what we see on the contrary is that Titus um, is said that he had an affection for them, chapter seven, verse 15, and here in an, earnest, an earnestness to meet them again. So where did this earnestness come from? What we see here in verse 16, what it tells us is that it was from God. And quite explicitly, it tells us God put it into the heart of Titus in earnest care for the people of Corinth. We know that after his last trip, that Titus uh, was welcomed wholeheartedly. He was comforted and his spirit was refreshed, the word tells us. And what we see is God using the repentance of a people in obedience of others to influence a disposition in Titus so much so that it produced in him a supernatural love and care for those individuals. Now remember where this repentance came from. 
Who produced the repentance in the church? It was God. God. And was it not therefore God who, as Paul states here, puts into the heart of Titus an earnest care for them? So let us stop just for a minute and pause and ponder at the sovereign care and rule of our God who puts into the heart of Titus a love and a care for these people, who uses the circumstances surrounding Titus and Paul and his friends to influence Titus towards a certain disposition which was for them, even though the present circumstances arguably should have said otherwise or meant otherwise. The Bible, it, it's, it's inescapably a fact of the Bible that God not only knows the heart of man, but he works and he operates on it to secure and fulfill his plans and his purposes, his ultimate purpose in Christ. One passage in, um, in particular, Book of Revelation, tells us that God put into the hearts of wicked men to carry out his purpose until his plan of redemption was completed. God put into the hearts of wicked men. Now, this doesn't mean that God gave these men a wicked will. No, he, even though they were wicked, he worked and operated upon their hearts and their wills to accomplish his purposes. So the point is this, if God can do this with wicked men, how much more so can God work and operate upon the hearts of those who love and trust him? And this is what we see evident here in this text from Titus. Why am I saying this? It's because Paul's point here in verse 16 is this, It's the same as chapter two. If you look back, chapter two, verse 14, it is thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Paul's primary emphasis thus far in this whole book is that God is the initiator, he's the keeper, and he is the finisher of all our life. And if we zoomed out and we took an overview overview of what we've seen thus far in this letter, we would see this, that God is the initiator, keeper, and finisher of both our comfort and our patient enduring. He is the beginning and, and middle and end of our uh, uh, righteous boasting and our promise gripping. He is the one who establishes us. He anoints us. He seals us. He is the one who helps us forgive and he leads us in triumphant victory over sin and circumstances. He is the one who makes us sufficient and yet transforms us continually. He is the one who gives us hope in the face of death and and preserves us even afterwards. He is the one who gives us every weapon necessary to fight sin and, and indeed anything else and everything we need to live lives of righteousness here on earth. And he is the one who allows us to grieve in order that we might be brought to repentance. He is the one who causes us to feel lack that we may trust him more. And of course, he is the one who gives us an abundance so that we may be a blessing to others. This is the point. This is the matter. This is the, the, the foundation for everything that Paul is saying, trusting God, trusting God. When we consider all that we have, we begin with this, thanks. 
When we consider all that we've been given, we begin with a posture submitted and, and before a sovereign and awesome and holy God that says like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. This is the posture of our hearts. And the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank him. Thank him for all that he has done. Sam Storms says in, uh, in commentary on this passage here, he says this, so when you find yourself loving the unlovely, thank God. Each time you choose what is righteous, thank God. When you experience strength to resist sin, thank God. When you show mercy to the weak and compassion to the hurting and are generous to the needy, thank God. For his sovereignty extends even to the impulses of our heart and the passions of our soul. Here's, here's the bottom line in, in this, and the point is that if, you, if you're lacking the desire to be generous today, pray to God. He's your source of strength. He is the one who renews you. He's the one who will give you and grant you des- the desire that you long for. Or maybe you don't even long for it. God can work upon that. Submit yourself to him. Maybe you find yourself here um, and, and you find yourself uh, abundantly uh, generous. Thank God for that. Thank God because he is the supplier of your strength and the ability to do so. So second thing is, uh, if the first thing is that Jesus is the Lord over our hearts, then surely he is the Lord over all things, including our bank accounts. Um, we may uh, or may not like to talk about money, but regardless of our disposition towards the conversation, uh, we must realize that when it comes to money, as Sam Storm says, money matters to God. Money matters. Uh, he's not just the Lord of our hearts, but he's the Lord over all of our life. And here in this uh, next portion of the passage here, Paul gets really practical with the church in terms of what he has done and and how he has gone about um, uh, setting up the collection of the saints for those in Jerusalem. And the whole purpose, remember here, in Paul's missionary journey out was to collect the money for the saints in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, the churches there had fallen under um, some some harsh times and desperate times, and it was likely due to the dispersion that happened under Roman occupancy, and possibly coupled with a um, a great famine that came over the land. Regardless, uh, Paul is going around to all the cities surrounding Jerusalem, and he's pleading with them to give towards the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And um, he's urging them to do this. And one of the things that we learn from this passage is how careful Paul is in this arrangement, how meticulous he is in making sure that the things that were done were done well, and they were done without a, even a hint of ulterior motive uh, from himself or the other apostle, uh, apostles. So while there can be things that we as individual followers of Christ can draw out of this passage, what's the, what's the overarching application for, uh, for us is towards church leaders and how church leaders and leadership handle money within the church. Crosspoint downtown is, um, is not exempt from a history of misuse and uh, abuse of money, mismanagement of money. We've had loopholes in the past. We've had lacks on, account- on accountability. 
Our former lead pastor stole money from the church. And this was a time of, of great grieving on my end, seeing what happened to my friend and to my friends um, surrounding him and even some of you that are listening today. But we have learned a lot since that time and have either closed the gap completely in some of those uh, weaknesses within our system or we've closed it enough to where it's uh, nearly impossible, if not completely impossible, for someone to use money without someone else knowing about it. Just this week as I was preparing for this sermon, God was um, really bringing this passage to life for me. I called Pastor Ryan and I, and I, I talked with him about ways that we can continue to sure up our forces here at Crosspoint downtown and start to implement some things that we've talked about uh, for a while in regarding to shoring up um, our um, practices in regards to money. This is an area that we are continuing to grow in. Even as much as we've learned, we want to continue to grow in it. We want to be better at handling the finances of the church because, let's be honest, it is a, an incredible thing that the church or anyone would trust uh, someone else with their money. And the fact that you trust us with your money, uh, it means a lot. And so we can see this as uh, a call that God has upon your pastors and the leadership of this church to steward the money that you have given to the church and God and for the city and for the gospel to do it well. But here's how I believe that this is done. I believe it starts with this. Um, with, with all I am, I believe uh, that this is true, that we begin by acknowledging that none of us come to the topic of money with complete pure motives. None of us come to the table just with a, a heart clean and, and pure, but no, we're, we're influenced internally and externally by all kinds of things. And right in the middle of any good motive that you have, there is undoubtedly a bad one vying for control. And this is the battle of our flesh and our spirit. This is the battle that um, is saying to you that, uh, that you don't have to trust in God, that you can trust in yourself. And this is the battle that we must be honest and say that not that we, we can't trust any of our motives, but that we are aware of them and we're honest enough to say that but for grace, there go I. But for grace, there go I. So I will not ever completely entrust myself to myself but I will entrust myself to my God and I will entrust myself to others who, who also have entrusted themselves to God so that we may walk by the spirit and not gratify the desires of our flesh. And I believe that this is Paul's intent here and why he has been so careful to administrate this collection. And what was the course that Paul took? Well, Sam Storms has laid out uh, three things that I think are just really practical takeaways from this. And so I'm just going to steal those from him and, um, and lay those out for us. I uh, have put together um, a detailed list of our practices as a church. And so if you care more about seeing those practices and how we handle money, then you can go to our website and there's a blog that I wrote. It's called How 2 Corinthians 8 Teaches Us to Handle Money Wisely. Um, but for the sake of this time, I want to unpack what uh, Paul's decision-making process and highlight how we as a church cooperate in these same principles. So Sam Storm says, those who handle money in the church should, one, be tested and proven. Verse 22 says this, 
And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. To arrange the collection that would be made, Paul sent men that he himself, either he himself or the church, had voted on as people of integrity and honesty. So here's the point for us that I just want to highlight is that anyone who handles money at Crosspoint downtown from the, from the very moment is collected on a sunny morning to, to anywhere after that is known. That person is known. They are in community. They, are, they know others and they are being known by others. That person is known. The next thing that Sam Storm says is that those who handle money in the church should never be alone. So Paul, although he trusts Titus, um, doesn't think it's wise that Titus should go alone. And so what does he do? He sends two other brothers with him. And we don't know the names of these men, um, but one of them is the brother uh, that he says is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And the other is the one that we just read about who has shown himself to be tested and earnest in many matters. And so Paul sends others with Titus because it's the wise thing to do. And here's what I want to highlight for us, that money here at Crosspoint downtown is always and will always be visible. There's no secret money. There's no way to get money or or leverage money or use money in any manner that's secretive or that somebody wouldn't know about. Everything is accounted for. And myself, Pastor Ryan, Chris Dubois, who handles the accounting for us, and also Vanessa Kaplan, all have access to the bank account to be able to see what's coming in and what's leaving at any moment of time. It's visible. And we do that purposefully. The next thing is that Sam Storms, uh, he says that those who handle money in the church should have a good reputation in the community. Verse 21 says, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. See, Paul knew that this collection, it was important. But it wasn't it just important that it was made, but it was important on how it was made. Everything that we do must be understood in this way, guys, that it will either demonstrate to the world the goodness, the majesty, and the love of our heavenly father and confront others on their disbeliefs about God or it will solidify it further. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read that one more time. Everything that we do must be understood in, as this. It will either demonstrate to the world the goodness, the majesty, and the love of our heavenly father or and, and confront others on their disbeliefs about God or it will further solidify them. See, it's, it's not only God who sees our good works, right? I mean, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that you are a city set upon a hill. You are the light of the world. And that is when the world sees your good works, it is then, why? So that they will give glory to your God, to your Father in heaven. And we want to say as a church, we want to say as leadership, we want to say collectively as a body of Christ that we will not give any ground for the gospel to be diminished in our lives. And that includes how we handle money. So here's what I want us to know. Um, And why I say all all this is that I want to say uh, that in an utmost sincerity that your leadership, your pastors have walked in integrity in these ways. We have walked in integrity 
towards these things. And we strive to put the gospel first in all ways. Where, and where there may have been failures in the past, we placed the stop gaps. But here's, here's the thing. Um, nothing's foolproof, right? That where, if wicked men want to do wicked things, then they'll figure out a way to do it. And so here's what I would encourage you with, is to make an interest in this. Is to make an importance of this in your life. Care deeply about this because you caring deeply about how money is handled in the church means that you care about me and you care about Pastor Ryan. You care about your pastors and leadership here at the church. More than that, you care about the furthering of the gospel in the world. Last thing here is, he says in verse 23, so give proof If Jesus is the Lord over your heart, if he's the Lord over your bank account, give proof of it. So give proof. Verse 23, let's read it. uh, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Here's the question. Is proving ourselves to others of the good that we have done, a bad thing. Now, we will often, as, as people, uh, we will prove ourselves in what we have done for others, ourselves, for family. And we also prove our worth by what we earn and what we can buy. Uh, we prove ourselves to others by what we know, by attempting to outshine someone or disprove them with our intellect. And to this end, to prove ourselves only to bring glory to ourselves and advance our agenda is outright sinful. But is there another way that can bring glory to God in proving ourselves to others? Because Paul is saying, prove it. So what does he mean here? Romans 12, 9 says, we are, uh, it's, we're told that to outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. That text, in, along with our passage, indicate to us that there is a nature in which measuring ourselves against someone else is profitable and good. It's appropriate. Now, now I have to say that this is more of an art than a formula, and I'm not advocating that we are to measure ourselves against each other as something ultimate, but submitted to our ultimate measurement of ourselves against a holy God there is an appropriateness to measure ourselves and to be encouraged by what other people have done is really the point. See, uh, you and I, although we may work hard to make a case for it, we're not just self-reliant, autonomous people. The Enlightenment taught humanity to think for themselves. You know, be a better you. You can, you can find the path forward the truth is inside of you. You don't need to look any further. Kant wrote, uh, the motto for the Enlightenment is have the courage to use your own understanding. It taught us that it is independence and autonomy that is at the top of all things. And one strand of that that is still pervasive in our lives is this privatization of our lives that this is my life, this is, I, I do what I do, you do what you do, and you don't have any say in what I do. 
And I'm sure you're familiar with the American maxim, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or maybe one that is a little familiar, more familiar to some is started from the bottom, now we hear. You know, but regardless, the premise is the same, and that is this, that we have nothing without working for it, and so therefore, whatever you have, you've earned. And on the surface, that sounds good. I mean, that sounds right. Like, well, this is what we want to teach our kids, that, you know, you have to have a strong work ethic. You have to, um, you're not just handed things on a silver platter. And that's a, that's a biblical good teaching, not just an American one. But where the American pull yourself up by your bootstrap uh, strap motivation uh, for giving is different from a Christian biblical motivation or uh, concept and mentality for giving is its motivation. It's, it's, it's the motivation that says um, over here that self-actualization is why I do all these things, is to become a better me, is to become the best me possible. And over here, and the motivation is God's glory. It's God. So what we can do here is we can separate ourselves from God. This is really what it practically comes down to is that humanity separates itself from its creator and thus it's put into competition within and amongst ourselves. And Paul's using an example of the Macedonians and how they gave generously, not just of what they have out of their lack, not so he can pit them against the Corinthians and strong arm the Corinthians into doing something, pressure them into doing something, but so that they would feel responsibility to what God has already given them. And we must see that God uses the example of other people. He uses their example um, to encourage us, to motivate us. He uses your example to encourage and motivate me and others. But there's little room for this in our culture and, and even in the church, right? For this type of emphasis. You know, we, we may be willing to say, that God is the one who uh, gives us the raw material, but it's up to us to, to leverage that and to, to work um, to use everything that comes our way and the opportunities that come our way. And thus we are convinced that we have more than others because we work harder than them. We have more because we work harder. And this type of attitude, church, it may make us into really good accountants, but it makes us into really lousy stewards. God is the giver and the bestower of all things. God is the giver and the bestower of all things. And this, this is the Christian premise for giving. Let, let me tell you, church, it, this in itself, when we are motivated in this way to give because God has given not because we want to repay God, not because we feel like we need to appease God, not because we have done so lousy and therefore we need to make up for something and, and we feel bad because God's given us so much and we can't give much, but because we're motivated in, in God's generosity towards us, we're motivated to be generous towards others. When we do that, it is a loud declaration and proclamation and reflection of the gospel everywhere. Scott Hafeman, commenting on this passage, he says, to give is to be an outpost of the kingdom of God. An outpost is, is a security detachment dispatched by a main body of troops, troops to protect them from enemy surprise. 
it's, it's, a, it's a dispatchment from the main body to protect. And so what he's saying here is that when we give, we are acting as an outpost of the kingdom of God. He's saying that this, that when a church gives in radically generous ways, it functions in a protection against what the enemy has planned for God and his church. There's a prevailing belief in our culture that goes against the authority. It undermines God and who he is. It wants to separate us from God. But see, God, God has from the beginning of time planned that he would be in close relationship with people. And although sin marred that, he has made radical steps to come close to mankind again. And when the church gives in a radically generous way, it says, I believe that, and it functions as a protection against a belief that would undermine this plan of God. So therefore, Paul's encouragement to give is more than just meeting a need, as we've said. It is this, it is thanksgiving, it is worship to this God who is sovereign over all things. Again, Scott Haifman continues, our giving is not a decision to participate in the projects of the church, but an expression of the fact that we are the church. That is, that we belong to God and hence to one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in in Christ. So may we give proof to one another and to the watching world that what we declare is real. It's real enough to dictate how we manage and how we give, how we spend, how generous we are. It's real enough for all those things. Jesus, I pray that you by your spirit would work this in our hearts. Oh God, be merciful and gracious towards your church. Help us to ward against, to fight against, to be an outpost against the prevailing uh, thought that you Um, are separate, that you don't want anything to do with us and that we can do whatever we want with our money. God, help us to hold this money loosely with our hands and to say it's all yours. You're the giver. You're the keeper. You're the finisher. Show me how to walk forward and may we walk in obedience to whatever you lead us to. In Jesus' name, amen.